thanks for coming back. I warned you not to come, and, uh, and you did anyway. So this is your day to, be, um, to figure out why I was trying to warn you. Part of the reason I'm trying to warn you or warned you is because today's topic includes some things that are what the, I would call the third rail. Do you have you ever heard that phrase? It's sort of a new, new phrase to me, but in an uh, electric train system back in the olden days, not toy trains, but real trains, there was uh, two rails for the wheels and one, one rail, the third rail, was where the power came from. And if you touch the third rail, the wrong way, you were zapped, right? And so there are some topics in our world, some conversations, some, some uh, ideas that wind up being third rails. You can say this, you can say this, but when you say this, right, the world reacts in, a, in an antagonistic way. And so today certainly contains some third rail material. But we're not afraid of it because God's not afraid of it and it's the truth. And so before we go to 1 Corinthians, I just want to remind you of some things that I've been reminded of from the book of 2 Timothy. So in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul is, uh, this is the last written letter by Paul. He's soon to die, and he is writing a letter to Timothy that he has appointed as the elder over the church of Ephesus, and he wants him to carry on the baton. And so he says, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. And so Paul's already, uh, and those of us who believe the Bible, we have already uh, made ourselves quite a minority by even using the word truth. And what I mean by that is that uh, people use the word truth, but what we mean by truth is that there actually is one, that there is an absolute truth, and some things are absolutely true, and some things are absolutely false. It's not just a matter of opinion or popular vote or the most people or what we want. It's whether or not it's actually objectively true. And We believe that God is the creator, and as the creator of the universe and the creator of human beings, he has the right, and he whether we think he should or not, he has the right to say some things are true and some things are false and some things are right and some things are wrong. So I'm already in a minority because I'm not holding to a relative view of truth, right? I'm not voting, I, I'm not going to say what's true for you is okay for you and what's true for me is okay for me. I'm not going to say that because I'm going to say what's true to God is what's true and what God says is not true is not true. And so that's the nature of Christianity. Jesus himself is a very narrow person. A very, he makes truth claims. He makes really bizarre, bizarrely narrow truth claims. Like he says, I am, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Those are really narrow, arrogant words. But he's God, God the Son, and so he, he's telling the truth when he says the truth. So that's where we come from. So my goal this morning is to obey Paul's intention to Timothy here, is that we want to handle what the Bible says is truth. But let me continue on here in 2 Timothy. Paul says, avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. So there are some things to talk about that are godless. In the verse 17, he says, their teaching 
will spread like gangrene. You know what gangrene is? It's, a, it's an infectious disease that spreads from one spot and then spreads more and more, and it can wipe you out, right? It can take away your limbs. And so it's a spreading infection. And so this, this, their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. So there's two guys who have departed from the truth. And so there was these two people whom both Paul and Timothy knew who had at one time adhered to the truth or at least made profession of the truth and have now departed from it. And so their teaching, there are, there are people who have moved away from the truth and their teaching will spread like gangrene and cause death and destruction. And so there is truth and there's not truth. And you can be approaching the truth. I, I really want with all my heart to submit to the truth of Jesus, whatever that is. I don't know for sure if I always totally understand it yet, but I'm, my orientation is to, as soon as I do, to obey it. That's what I want to do. But there are some who have rejected Jesus and I've departed from the truth. And he says, uh, one of the examples is that they, <clears throat> these people, they say that the resurrection has already taken place and by saying that, they destroy the faith of some. They say things that aren't true, and the effect is that other people are influenced, right? So that's, a, that's one of the examples of gangrene. Okay, <clears throat> still going. Nevertheless, so Paul is still going, and he says, Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm. What do you think he's talking about? What's God's solid foundation? The truth, right? Jesus is the living personal word of God, and the Bible is the living, written word of God. And Jesus is not in conflict with the Bible. He says there's not one stroke of a pen that's going to pass away. So I think we could say that God's solid foundation stands firm. That's his word, right? And it's sealed with an inscription. And this inscription that Paul talks about is kind of interesting. It's sort of enigmatic. It's not real clear where it comes from, but he says the first inscription, Paul says, is the Lord knows those who are his. Now, this is, best we can tell, a reference from a story in the book of Numbers where Moses was leading the people and they were stuck out in the wilderness for 40 years. And there was a, a group of people who said, no, Moses isn't the only one. We're just as good as he is. And so there's, there's this rebellion, Korah's rebellion, and there was, uh, we can offer incense, and they can offer incense. And so long story short, there was this test that God, uh, God says, tomorrow morning you offer your offers and we'll see who God knows and who God doesn't. And in the end of the story, those who rebelled against Moses and against God were consumed by the earth. The earth just opened up and swallowed them up because they rebelled against God. And so this is a phrase, the Lord knows those who are his. I can't tell necessarily, nor can you, who is one of God's followers and who isn't, right? We, most, we, we might both have a different view of the truth and uh, I might be moving towards it and you might de be departing from it and I can't tell and you can't tell, but God does. God knows your heart, whether you're submissive to his truth or you're like Hymenaeus, you're departing from the truth. So the first thing, going back here a little bit again, right? God's solid foundation stands firm and it's sealed with this inscription. So the thing we can trust is that God knows those who are his. And the second part, Paul says, is everyone 
who confesses the name of the Lord, Jesus, the Lord, must turn away from wickedness. So you, I, the Lord knows who are his, but, or and, everyone who follows Jesus turns away from wickedness. That's a, that's a litmus kind of test. Are you oriented toward wickedness or are you turning away from wickedness? And so while I can't tell and you can't tell, the Lord knows, but the Lord also says you must turn away from wickedness, right? So I'm an engineer and I like to communicate. So I got, let me, let me try to diagram this a little bit. There is such a thing as truth, okay? And some of us are moving toward it and hopefully not, but some of us might be moving away from it. And I can't tell and you can't tell, but the Lord knows who are his and you must turn away from wickedness if you claim to follow the Lord Jesus, right? That, that's basically what I think Paul said. That's how I, this is the picture I would draw in my mind when I'm reading that text that we just read from 2 Timothy. So, with that as our introduction this morning, let's pray and ask God to help us through the third rail of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Father in heaven, we, um, I, I personally stand before you as one that you have redeemed. You have forgiven my sin. And uh, not because of anything I did to deserve it, not because of any cleverness or intelligence on my part, not because of any worth of any deed that I have done, but only by your grace. And you opened my eyes to understand your gospel and you gave me the faith to believe and I trusted you and I, I, I said yes to Jesus. And in so doing, because you saw that faith in my heart, you have forgiven me and washed away my sin. I am no longer under condemnation. I'm free from the accusation of evil and I have a permanent place in heaven with you, and I, I, I no longer need to fear death. I have life eternal already present in my life. What amazing grace you have given to me. And Father, while I'm still here on this earth, I'm going to struggle. I'm going to struggle fighting my body and the temptations in this world. But you can do that, and you get glory through the conflict, and you, you somehow... Uh, want us to stay here. You want me to stay here until your mission is completed, until I have done what you want me to do. And so, Father, I pray that today would be one of those times where I'm obedient to you and that I'm submissive to your truth. Give me a heart that follows. May I be approved as one who rightly divides the word of truth. And if not, may your conviction come and correct me. And I thank you in Jesus' name. And what I pray for myself, I pray for everyone here that we would be a people who trust you, first of all, and submit to the King, the Almighty King, the Creator of the universe, the Lord Jesus, whose will gets to win. In his name we pray, amen. All right, I bet you can't wait. All right, let's read First Corinthians. I'll back up a little bit and give some context. Remember, Paul has already addressed the situation where the man had his father's wife, and so he was sleeping with his stepmother, and that was unacceptable. And then the next situation he had to deal with was believers who were suing one another in court, 
And so we'll pick up the last part of that, and it continues right on to this topic today. So the very fact that you have lawsuits among you <clears throat> means that you have already been, or have been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourself cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers and sisters. So that's where we left off, how awful it is to cheat one another, okay? And then he says, do you not know that wrongdoers will, in, will not inherit the kingdom of God? The word for wrongdoers there is just uh, ah-righteous, unrighteous, the opposite of righteous. So do you not know that those who don't do righteousness, wrongdoers, will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor practicing homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And this is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. <clears throat> Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, it's a quote now, from the book of Genesis, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is unified with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins people commit are outside their bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Okay, so my first point is, we're looking at a Bible list. A Bible list. What's the Bible list? Well, it's a list of wrongdoers. Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? So, what's the list? Well, the list is here again. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral, that's the first one, or idolaters, or adulterers, or male prostitutes, or practicing homosexuals, or thieves, or greedy, or drunkards, or slanderers, or swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's a Bible list. I think I counted 10. 10 things in the list. And so that's a pretty clear list as an example of those who are ungodly. Now let me just say a few things about how we interpret Bible lists in general. First of all, 
a list in the Bible is not necessarily exhaustive. What I mean by that is that when the Bible author makes a list, not everything that could be on the list is on the list. For example, um, when uh, what's the greatest commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? And then another gospel writer will say heart, mind, and soul, and will. And so the, some other ones will include another one. Or another example might be the gifts. There's four chapters in the Bible that talk about spiritual gifts, and one of them lists these certain gifts, another one lists these certain gifts. And so none of the particular lists themselves are exhaustive of everything that could be on the list because there's other places in the Bible where a list contains other things that aren't on the other list. And so um, in this example here of the list of, uh, of sins, the list of things that won't inherit the kingdom of God, here we have a list in 1 Corinthians 6, but Paul makes a similar list in 1 Ephes- Ephesians, there's only one Ephesians. <laughs> in Ephesians 4 and 5, he lists a few things. In Colossians 3, he lists a few things. And in Romans 1, he lists a few things. And so in those lists, uh, some of them are on all the lists, some of them are on just one of the lists. The point is that no one list is exhaustive. You get it? So it's okay if there's a few things not on this list this time in 1 Corinthians 6. You get that? That's the way we, should, we shouldn't read too much into a particular list in the Bible. All right? But neither do the lists contain errors. So it, while it's true that not everything that could be on the list is on the list, we can also say there's nothing on the list that should not be on the list. Right? If Paul says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, long there's not, not one of those shouldn't be there. It should be on the list. So that Bible list that we just read of those ten kinds of things are on the list. And what are they a list of? They are a list of the patterns of sin that cannot be inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Remember the verse he said, uh, he said, these are the things that anyone who does, these wrongdoers cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. And then he gives a list, an example list to help us understand, what do you mean by wrongdoers? And he includes thieves and he includes slanderers and, and all those things in the list. So that's the Bible list. All right? Now, he goes on to say, that's what some of you were. So some of us, or maybe I should say all of us, were some of those things, or was some, or other things on the list, right? But that's what we were. Before we believe in Jesus, that's where unbelievers are. That's where lost people are. Is there the ungodly, the people who do those things? He says, that is what some of you were. But you were washed... You were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So let's slow down a little bit. What are the key words here? You were washed. So we were that way and something happened to wash us. What is that? The blood of the Lord Jesus washes away sin. Everybody's sin? What happened? It's when you believe in Jesus You receive the forgiveness of sins. So some of us, we were those things on the list, but we've been washed. And so those things should not characterize our life anymore. You were sanctified. That's the next word. What does sanctified mean? That's You were made holy. You were made special. Sanctified is being set apart as special. 
this ring, the gold in this ring is sanctified because it has a, a special purpose. It's a symbol of my pledge, my promise to Tammy. So this is a sanctified piece of gold. But there might be another piece of gold somewhere that is not sanctified. I don't care so much about that. would be profane. The difference between special and not special. And so you can sanctify it. You've been set apart. So as believers, when you trusted in God, God sets you apart. He makes you different. He's going to work in your life. You're supposed to be different. And then what's the next word? You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. What does justified mean? Justified means that when you stand before God, we stand in the righteousness of Christ, not our own. So what gets me into heaven, if I were to die right now, and I had to stand before God, and he said, why should I let John Dubois into heaven? Why should I let you into heaven? My answer would be, because Jesus paid the price. He's the one I trust, and I'm in his righteousness. So I've been justified. My sins have been forgiven, but Jesus' righteousness has been applied to my account. So we used to be characterized by the things on the Bible list, but these are three ways to describe the same event. I was saved. I was forgiven of my sin. I was set apart. I was justified. And when that happened, that happened in the name of the Lord Jesus. All of what Jesus stands for, his reputation, his purpose, his goal, his purpose for my life, the way he wants me to be for God at my death, all those things, I stand in the name of the Lord Jesus, and it's by the Spirit of God. God's own Spirit breathes into us and gives us life. We were dead in our sins, And he quickens us. He makes us alive. So God is working, and God is changing, and he changes me from the inside out so that those things in that list of wrongdoers would not characterize my life. Follow? I'm not supposed to follow the pattern of those sins because I'm in Jesus. I'm not supposed to be described as a person who has the pattern, the orientation, the way of living that you would describe as being a thief. I'm not supposed to be a living thief. It doesn't matter how many times I would try to justify or what other mitigating experiences or or arguments I could use about, hey, I'm kind of poor anyway, and the people who've got the things, they can afford it, you know, sort of a Robin Hood mentality. You know, I just only rob from the rich. no. A Christian cannot be characterized as a thief because you've been changed on the inside. And to say that you would be, oh, it's okay, I'm just a committed thief, doesn't fix the fact that it's still thievery. I can't make it different. Nor can I for any of the other items on the list. Right? The next thing I want to point out that Paul says here is that there's some lies we tell ourselves. And the Corinthian believers were especially good at this. They used philosophies of their day or little catchphrases to kind of lie to themselves that things weren't what they really were. I have the right to do anything is one of their famous ones, and Paul brings this up again later. But one of the things that they would do is that because Jesus has paid all the penalty of my sins, and I am now under no condemnation. I'm free to do anything because I won't ever be condemned for it anyway. And so, yes, I am free in Christ. I'm not under the law. But remember, we studied that doesn't mean that grace gives us permission to do anything we want, right? That would be a complete distortion. Shall we continue in sins that grace may abound? God forbid, right? But somehow they got in this phrase, 
All things are lawful is the way that King James would translate this. Um, I have the right to do everything. So yes, it's true that you sort of do, but you don't because you belong to Jesus now. And so you do. I don't have to keep the law in order to go to heaven, but um, Paul would push back, but not everything's beneficial. So there's another criteria to include. I have the right to do anything, but Paul says, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. Don't you know in Romans 6, he says, don't you know that the one to whom you obey is the master? That's who the, you're going to say. So if you give your body as a slave to sin, you're still obeying sin. Do you want to be mastered by those things that, we're still, that we were once ashamed of? And so the point is, is that these are lies that people would say, oh, everything's lawful. It's okay. I'm under grace. I'm under grace. Pedal to the metal. I'm under grace. No. Not everything's beneficial. Not everything's, everything uh, it might master you. It might characterize your life in a way that you don't want. Okay, then look at this other lie. There's another one they said, well, food for the stomach and stomach for food, and God's going to destroy them both. You know, we end up in heaven. We're all spirits. We get to float around on the clouds and play the harp. Our bodies don't matter anyway. So body for food and food for body. Let's go visit the prostitutes. Because it's just my body anyway. Well, this comes out of a lot of pagan philosophy in those days, and it's still pervasive today, that somehow spirit is good and body is bad. Spirit is good, physical things are by definition bad. And so since there's nothing I can do with my body that would please God anyway because it's physical fundamentally, then it doesn't matter what I do with my body because it's just physical anyway. It's, it's, you know, hey, I'm only human. It doesn't matter anyway. That kind of philosophy... That's not true at all, and Paul's going to refute that because why did Jesus die on the cross? To save our spirits only? No, he saves us body and soul. Did Jesus raise from the dead just in a spirit ghosty way? No, he rose in a physical way, his body. It's the resurrection of the body. And when I get to the new heaven and earth, guess what? I'm not going to be ghosty. I'm going to be corporal. I'm going to be in my flesh. I'm going to have a new body. And so it matters. My body matters. So this idea that oh, it doesn't matter. It's just your body anyway. You're going to throw it away and when you die, you never see it again. No. Your body matters to God. And so that's one of the lies that they said. Our culture is full of lies too, right? We can justify things on the list of 10 by all kinds of fancy lies. I won't, uh, won't give them the time. All right, the body, however, is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So if you think your body doesn't matter, you're misunderstood entirely. It actually belongs to the Lord. And the Lord did what he did for your body and your spirit. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Amen? Awesome. All right. So I don't want us to forget here that in this whole conversation, Paul launches into a particular discussion of sexual morality, but the premise he's starting with is our bodies are a big deal to God. We sometimes think that our bodies don't matter. We really do have, I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. Some, you know, that we like that we talk about the sweet by and by, we're going to fly away. Even a lot of our hymnology will, will have us introduce or support this dichotomy that it's only our spirits that matter, but our bodies matter to God. And 
everyone here's got one. And I don't know about you, but my body's kind of betraying me a little bit these days. But, but it matters a lot. And I have to, how I live in my body is a really big deal. So look at some of the things he talks about the body. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Do you realize, do you see how contra-cultural that statement is? There are people in our world that think that, man, if your body wants it, you got to give it to it. It's, a, it's the obligation. If your body wants sexual, you have to fulfill that. If you don't fulfill your sexual appetites, you are, you are being untrue to yourself. What a lie. I'm not, I'm not primarily a sexual being. I'm not primarily, and above that, sexual morality, I am not meant for that. God never intended us to be used that way. As a matter of fact, that is one of Satan's greatest distortions is to take this wonderful gift that God gave to a husband and wife so that they would be addicted to each other. That's what God designed it. And to take that and to twist it and spread it every other possible way and make it ugly. So the body is not meant for sexual. You don't have to have sexual fulfillment to be a full person. That phrase stands alone in our world in a lot of ways, right? There are so many people who don't get that. Man, you can be single and completely fulfilled. You do not need, you do not need sexual expression to be a person at all. Was Jesus an incomplete person? Did he miss out? He was single and fulfilled every aspect of full humanity. What an example. And the Bible is clear about the benefits of a single life. So that's a big thing. Another thing, verse 14, by his power God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. So our physical resurrection is a big deal to God. It's not ghosty. And then he says, he begins the first of three, do you not know? So it's sort of like an education class, right? Do you not know that first of all, your bodies are member of Christ himself. If I had have said, we're the members of Christ, we'd all say, oh yeah, we are all members of his body. And we always make that uh, metaphorical. But actually the Bible says that our bodies are part of his body. We are Jesus' body on earth. We are his hands and feet. And then the question is, shall then I then take the members of Jesus and unite them with a prostitute? I'm going to take Jesus' body that he owns and I'm going to bring it to the brothel? Man, how awful. Jesus never goes there. And then another, do you not know, that he who unites himself, when you go and you have sexual relations with a person, it doesn't matter what the scenario is, when you, when you do that in any way, you're one with that person in their body. That's the way God made us as human beings, is that sexual expression is a oneness. And so uh, from the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve were married, the two became one flesh. And so whenever that happens, you're, you're doing the wrong thing. And then verse 17, but whoever, but whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. So if you're a believer and you're united with the Lord and then you take his body, your body, and you go unite it with a prostitute, you are violating God's character. You're making him participate in something that's profane. So his advice is flee. Who's a famous fleer? Joseph, right? Joseph, Potiphar's wife, kept saying, come lie with me, come lie with me. And he fled. And so Paul, again, reminds us, flee from sexual morality. 
You know, of all the sins you can commit, they're outside your body. If you're a thief, if you're a slanderer, you know, you're doing things outside. But when you sin sexually, you're sinning against your own body. You're harming, you're sinning, you're defiling. I don't know how else to say it. You're sinning against your body. Your body is being mistreated. It's not a blessing. It's not even good. It's a pleasure of sin for a season. I can't help but remember the, the um, story of the, one of David's sons who had a lustful attraction to his stepsister. And he couldn't think of anything until he finally violated her and raped her. And the text says that after he did so, he hated her more than he had lusted for her before. That's what sexual sin does. It leaves you disappointed and broken. Well, and a third do you not know, that your bodies are temples. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives in you, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God. So my body matters in a lot of different ways. Right? So let me just summarize. Our bodies are a big deal. Our bodies will be raised. Our bodies are members of Christ. Sexual activity unites our bodies. So we're uniting our body with another person. And so if it's not inside marriage, it's, a, it's an immorality. And then um, our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit. So those are, those are the reasons we just find out why our bodies are a big deal. All right, and then the fifth one, is sins against our bodies. And again, I don't want to miss what he said. Flee sexual immorality. All other sins are committed outside the bodies, but those who sin sexually sin against their own bodies. You're hurting yourself. And then the sixth point I wanted to say, and from this text, it's not me wanting to say it, the sixth thing I see Paul say is, honor God with your body. You and I have the privilege of offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is our reasonable, the Bible says it's the acceptable, it's reasonable, it's an act of worship. I used to think about how hard it would be to, I wish I could do something like David did, or you know, back in the Old Testament, when they wanted to show God that they love God, they would take something precious like the uh, firstborn of their flock, a, a Babies are cute anyway, right? I mean, every we saw baby deer yesterday. Oh, they're so cute. Well, every a kitten's even cute. You know, babies are cute. And I take a little lamb, a baby lamb, and, and to, to bring that to God and, and offer it, to, to kill it on the, author, on the altar as a sacrifice to show how much more you love God. What a beautiful... Um, there was a time when David was uh, going to give something to the Lord and and he said, I will not give the Lord anything that costs me nothing. Somebody was going to give him the land or something to give to God. And David said, no, no, no. I want to pay the full price for it so that I can give to the Lord something that's valuable. I don't want to give to the Lord something that costs me nothing. It'd be like the, um, it'd be like the person who is a, a, wood, a woodworker and he builds stuff all the time and he cuts wood and he builds beautiful furniture and stuff. And God comes to his door and he gives him a gift and he so looks around and he goes and grabs a handful of sawdust out of the garbage can and gives it to God. How much did that sawdust cost him? Nothing, right? It's giving God the chaff. That's a lot different than giving God the furniture you built, 
right? And so we want to honor God with our body and give him something that costs something. And look at this. You are not your own. Do you remember that? When Jesus saves you, you don't belong to yourself anymore. You are a slave to Christ. So I am not my own. My body is not mine. And then look at this. I was bought, you were bought with a price. What's that price? The Lord Jesus' death, right? His body had to go on the cross, experience all the agonies of that beating and the whipping and the humiliation and the thirst and the strangling and the drowning in his own uh, lung fluids. The crown of thorns. His body experienced that. And that was the price he paid for my body. Jesus' body was broken for me. So I was bought with a price. Therefore, since I'm not my own, and Jesus has bought me with such a horrible, expensive price, I am being told to honor God with my body. And that means believing and obeying his commands about how I treat my body and how I do with it. Let me just uh, try to summarize it this way. First of all, consider the price that was paid for your body. Do you realize that the body you woke up with this morning and that you wake up with tomorrow, Lord willing, if you don't get to go to heaven already, that body was paid for with Jesus' blood. And if you think you're not important, if you think your body doesn't matter, you just spend some time thinking about what Jesus went through to buy your body. So you're, you're, you're valuable. Your body matters to him. Every scratch and and scar, every bruise, it pales compared to the price that was paid. Amen? The next thing I want you to remember is give back to God a gift of great cost. I don't want to give to God anything that costs me nothing. What's harder to do than to suppress the drives, the appetites of my body? Right? It's really, really super hard. Amen? Amen? You got to agree with that. When I want that bag of potato chips, man, it's really, really super hard. And I'll come up with all kinds of rationalizations like, well, I ran today and I need to replenish my salt content anyway. You know? And I can always start my diet tomorrow. And, and, but that extra bag, and I'm not saying never have potato chips, but I know when I'm being tempted to take the extra bag or the extra handful. And it's so hard because they taste so good and I want it, I want it, I want it. But if I'll say no and turn and offer that to Jesus, it cost me something, didn't it? I can actually give Jesus something that cost me tons. Are you willing, am I willing to give Jesus my sexual appetites, and let him be master of all that. Oh, it's so hard. It's a beautiful gift then, isn't it? Because it costs you something. You have to work at it. You have to be willing to not be your own boss. You sell yourself to Jesus. He bought you, actually. And then finally, I want to say, God gets glory through our warfare and victory over sin. 
I was wondering, why doesn't he just take us home? Why doesn't he just make us perfect? Why does he make it so I want the potato chips so bad? Why doesn't he just fix that and make me not like chips anymore? Because one of the reasons might be because he gets glory out of his children giving him the living sacrifice of their bodies offered to God, right? It's a way to show Jesus certainly deserves that kind of devotion from us. Amen? He deserves it. And so it's a way for us to give him glory. And somehow God wants to see, look at that. You used to be a thief, and now you are not. And that process of growing out of that pattern of life and becoming a shining one of Jesus makes people say, wow, Jesus must be great. And he is. And I can't wait to meet those brothers and sisters in Corinth who used to be, but they were washed, they were sanctified, they were justified by the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Amen? And I love you guys because you're in the same boat. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you for telling us the truth. Forgive us for keeping our bodies for ourselves and being so selfish. Help us to honor you with our bodies. May we, may we realize how important it is to you and may we offer to you that, gate, that great gift of that sacrifice of self-control for Jesus' sake. You have been good to us for sure and we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with us as we sing our closing song, amen. Saved in Jesus' name. Isn't it awesome? Well, thank you so much for coming to church anyway. Whew. And uh, you are certainly welcome to join us for cookies and coffee now and come back for the uh, report and the presentation by Kevin about Pine Ridge. That'll be good too. And, uh, and again, consider tonight our Bible study. <laughs> You're dismissed. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Wyoming Park Bible Fellowship. We hope and pray that it strengthened your faith and pointed you to Jesus. We want you to know, too, that we grow in our faith not just through listening to sermons, but by becoming part of a local church. If you're not part of a local church, we pray that you'll visit one soon. And if you're in the Grand Rapids or Wyoming area, we want to invite you to join us each Sunday morning at 930 for worship. May God bless you.